Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Katie Janess. Everything about July 27, 2021, was ordinary for Emma Clark. She woke up late with her longtime girlfriend, Catherine Janess, and unenthusiastically rolled out of bed for a strong cup of coffee. What was afternoon for everyone else was early morning for the couple, who both worked late into the night as bartenders. Emma sipped eagerly from her warm mug, knowing she'd need all the help she could get for another shift. Henry's is a beautiful tavern, spaciously modern and dark, with the biggest patio in Midtown Atlanta. Now that things were getting back to a new normal and social distancing restrictions were lifting to some capacity, she knew things would be busy, even for a Tuesday night. What do you have going on today? She asked Katie. It was her day off and she planned on messing around with some new music she was working on. I'll drop by during your shift with Bo later, she said, referring to their pitbull Bowie. They named him after Katie's musical obsession, David Bowie. Katie dropped by the bar just before midnight, seeing how the crowd was and when Emma expected to be done. She didn't normally work Tuesdays, but Katie was flying out to see her mom in Michigan the next day, so she had rearranged her schedule to drop her off and pick her up. Like she had assumed, it was bustling for a Tuesday, and there were some new people getting trained, so Emma wouldn't be off work for at least an hour. Katie kissed her goodbye and said she'd come back around then so they could head home together. She popped in her earbuds and walked out of the bar, waving at a few regulars who recognized her. Katie had lived in Midtown for over a decade and knew a lot of familiar faces. Being a bartender is like that, and Katie was great at her job. She could pretty much talk to anybody. Surveillance footage would capture Katie and Bowie at the Rainbow Crosswalk at 10th Street and Piedmont Park, about five minutes from Henry's and a mile from their apartment. She knew Midtown like the back of her hand, so she took different routes with Bowie depending on her mood. The massive park is filled with walking paths, baseball fields, a huge lake, and a view of the city that's breathtaking. Dogs must be leashed at all times, and even though it may not be everyone's first choice for a walk at midnight, Katie always felt safe in Midtown. Besides the random homeless person here and there, she never really experienced anything dangerous. Emma waited for a while at the bar when she finished, texting and calling Katie to see where she was. Assuming she decided to go home, Emma went back to their place. But when she got in the door around one in the morning, she was surprised that Katie wasn't waiting. She would have been finished walking Bowie by then. She tried calling again. Maybe they'd somehow missed each other when Katie went back to Henry's. Weirdly, she still wasn't responding to text messages or answering the phone. Using the Find My iPhone app, she saw Katie's cell pinging in the park, but the little blue dot wasn't moving. That was weird because Katie wouldn't just be standing around in one spot. There was a small feeling in the pit of her stomach, but Emma tried to ignore it. Maybe Katie dropped her phone and was looking for it, Emma thought, getting onto her bike and riding towards Piedmont. Just as Emma made her way into the park's entrance at 10th Street and Charles Allen Drive, she saw a strange shape on the ground up ahead, almost like a trash bag. Riding over to it, the figure slowly came into focus. A lightning bolt of horrified disbelief struck Emma from head to toe when she realized it was Bowie. She got closer and realized he was dead. Emma started screaming, stood up from her knees, and began yelling for Katie. There, just a half a mile from the entrance was Katie's body, covered in blood. Emma touched her face, shook her slightly, screaming her name. As she tried checking for a pulse, she realized her throat was slashed. She could barely breathe or think straight. How could this be happening? Emma scanned the darkness around her, feeling helpless, but there wasn't a single person in sight. She pulled out her phone and dialed 911. Atlanta 911, operator 7 What's the address to your emergency? I'm at the entrance of Piedmont Park. I just... 
was searching for my girlfriend first because I couldn't find her. She just said, she's here at Fremont Park, please help. You said somebody's dead oh at Fremont Park? Yes, ma'am. Please send help. Please. All right, yes, ma'am. I'm going to send help to you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wait. Near the entrance, like, I don't know how to explain it to me. Did you just see that? That's like girlfriend. Yeah. Alright, hold. Please, oh my god, dude, she's like she's dead, dead. Like it's so far. Alright, I'm about to, I'm about to call Grady, okay? Many people won't understand how Emma could choose to leave the park instead of staying until the paramedics arrived. During the 911 call, a passerby screams and has an exchange with Emma but nobody comes over to help her. The scene was unbelievably violent and scary and so, so bloody. The park wasn't well lit. With Bowie and Katie clearly dead, Emma ran away in fear. We all have our responses to a traumatic event, whether it be fawn, freeze, fight, or flight. And flight is the most logical thing to do when you're in a dark park by yourself where there's just been a murder. The response is often triggered by feeling threatened and exposed. If there's a way to escape and survive without confrontation or conflict, it's the option that should be chosen. But even so, it's important to note that we don't consciously choose our trauma responses. The sympathetic nervous system makes that choice through conditioning. This is why a lot of the time we hear survivors talk about things they did in the moment of an extreme event without really being able to explain why. And these reflexive survival behaviors aren't just about the situation, they're also about the person. Someone who is fairly logical and discerning, but maybe lands on the more avoidant side, tends to flee or even isolate themselves. And that spectrum of avoidance can be seen in a multitude of behaviors because trauma itself is a spectrum. Things like staying excessively busy or overworking, or always having to face the assessed exits when they're out in public somewhere. Understandably, when it comes to interpersonal relationships, the flight response isn't always the easiest to work with. But when you're alone in a dark park at one in the morning and you think you could possibly be hurt or even killed, flight makes perfect sense. Flight is how you survive. Katie would be one of 158 homicides reported by the Atlanta PD. And the area that covers downtown and midtown where she was murdered has only seen increased violence since then. Even though Katie and Emma may not have had any personal experience with dangers in the park, there's plenty of people who have lived in that area and would never go through there at night. Maybe Katie felt a sense of added protection, figuring most people wouldn't be bold enough to attack someone with a dog. Either way, she hadn't made it that far into the park before she was attacked. Whoever murdered her either followed her into the park or crossed paths with her shortly after she entered and then fled. The best place to start would be CCTV footage and security cameras. And the Atlanta Police Department was no stranger to a homicide investigation, but their typical cases often involved burglary and gang violence. Nobody would truly understand the full extent of this crime until the autopsy results would be released. But every bit of new information would only further fuel speculation from the public about a case that would only get colder by the day. Katie pressed the upload button while she held her breath. It wasn't as if she was going to go viral or anything, but now it was out there. Like, really out there. Her own original music. She had played in bands before and was no stranger to the stage, but for some reason, this felt way more vulnerable. It was just her behind the mic, her own words and thoughts and feelings, every line sung to music she wrote completely herself. Music had always been a form of therapy for her. In a world where she sometimes felt as if she didn't know where she belonged, 
Certain songs had erased those feelings for a few moments, had ignited some spark of purpose and meaning right down deep into her soul. In the hardest of times, it was music that kept her going. In the best of times, it was music that kept her company. The idea of possibly being able to do that for another person, even just one, was reason enough to finally share it. At 40 years old, she figured she had nothing to lose by putting it out there. Her music was bold ideas mixed with easy listening, reminiscent of alt-rock female singer-songwriters of the 80s and 90s that had inspired Katie to teach herself how to play guitar. Even if she didn't make a dime from this dream, it could still be realized. You need to share it with everyone, Emma would always encourage her. Katie's passion for social justice and delicacy approaching hard topics in such a mesmerizing way was something the world needed now more than ever. It was the thick of summer 2021, and people were still struggling to find some sort of new normal, still hoping for a light at the end of the tunnel to fasten themselves securely to. If there was nothing else, there was always art. When she wasn't slinging drinks from behind the bar in Midtown, Katie's life was full of creative endeavors. Besides singing and collecting guitars, she was quite the talented artist visually as well. She loved painting and writing poetry, reading, and watching documentaries. Her ideal party night was something more along the lines of some good food, good drinks, and board games with friends. Bonus if you could get her dark sense of humor and sarcasm. Katie loved a good inside joke. It was one of the reasons why she'd hit it off with Emma instantly. Where other people would often have a confused look on their face, Emma would smile and laugh, knowing exactly what Katie meant. Emma's brother had been a bartender at the same restaurant as Katie, and when she moved to Atlanta, she spent a lot of her free time there. Eventually, Katie asked if she wanted to come meet her dog. When Katie moved there, she too had experienced unfamiliar faces and a strange loneliness. But instead of hanging out at a bar, she had adopted a pit bull named Tori to keep her company. It wasn't long before they were dating and eventually living together. Their little family grew by one when Emma adopted her own pit bull to add to the mix. Over the years, life had formed into a reliable and comfortable routine. They were healthy, they were happy, they both had goals and aspirations they were working towards as individuals while supporting one another fully. What else could you ask for in life? Katie would think to herself. In her day-to-day -day life, Katie felt safe and secure. Introverted, but confident. She loved her city. She liked her job. She was excited about seeing where her music could take her. She wasn't someone who lived a high-risk lifestyle or associated with people who may have questionable character. The most heated that Catherine's life got was her occasional debates with customers at the bar. But Katie, who was always clocked in, was polite and open-minded, even if she totally disagreed with their point of view on certain things. It had been an especially politically charged couple of years, and in a place where tongues loosened their discernment with each drink, there's no shortage on opposing positions. People felt uncertain, helpless, betrayed, and burnt out. But Katie witnessed most people finding it easier to express all of those more vulnerable aspects through anger and rage. And she got it. Even if they didn't agree, she got the intensity of their feelings. It's what sparked her inspiration to pick up a guitar and make something that mattered. Maybe I should play them one of my songs sometime, she would tell Emma, recalling a debate with a customer that was still getting under her skin. That would have been the extent of chaos in Katie's life. Nothing but your average interaction with a regular during happy hour. But in a world where people have killed for less, nothing can be overlooked. When questioning about the night was over, Emma went to her dad's place, not being able to bear the sight of the apartment she shared with Katie and Bowie. They had been her world, and now her little family was just gone in an instant. This is the kind of stuff that happened in the movies, not to everyday people like them. Atlanta News First will become one of the few sources of media that reports on Katie's case and keeps her name in rotation of murders still remaining unsolved in the city. 
Emma chose to sit down with them for a proper interview within just a day of Katie's murder, although the replay of the interview wasn't posted in full on their YouTube channel until March 2022. Emma sits beside her father on the porch. She's in a white t-shirt and mic'd up, so it's safe to assume that there's been some light discussion while the crew got ready. Her face is slightly puffy and her eyes are tired. You can tell she's been crying. Any media done with Emma is usually met with instant scrutiny. She doesn't cry during the interview, and the public analyzing only goes on from there. Observation is about not losing focus and attaching too much to a certain perception. In most situations, a baseline of behavior needs to be established before you can call other patterns outright suspicious. Not everyone is a smiling Chris Watts awkwardly rocking back and forth, making it painfully obvious that something isn't right. It's unclear how outwardly emotional Emma is as a person in general, but it's safe to say that during times like these, if people are able to safeguard their vulnerabilities away from the camera's lens, they usually do that. Emma isn't the first person to be called a murderer because she didn't show a certain emotion. Crying and talking are difficult. They're hard to do together. And it's awkward to talk and cry in front of strangers, when it's sometimes even hard for people to let their guard down with their own friends and family. The content itself is also important to pay attention to. The reporter is aware that finding Katie was traumatic for Emma, and she doesn't dig deep on this topic. Talking about the kind of person Katie was, how they met, and her confusion of this event in a general sense is obviously easier territory for her. There's also something to be said for shock and the physical and emotional exhaustion. Between the chaos of discovering Katie, being questioned for hours, switching homes, and doing media, it's fair to say that Emma most likely hasn't had much time to rest in the last 24 to 36 hours, or think, or process anything at all. The body will not always remain at a 10, with intense crying and heaving breaths and sorrowful screaming. Eventually, the nervous system will do what it can to calm and regulate itself. Grief often comes in waves, in stages, and expresses itself differently with every person. But if you think Emma is guilty of something, you'll most likely find reasons to justify that with every blink, every phrase, and every lack of emotion you expect to see. But it's important to keep in mind just how unbelievably nonsensical this attack was. If you were to view her as someone in a state of shock, you'd also find valid proof of that too. The reporter asks Emma about the last 24 hours. She starts to breathe quickly with tiny sharp inhales, almost a mild hyperventilating, keeping her mouth open, the end slightly downward. She says it's hard to describe. She uses words like unreal, difficult, and she agrees that she's probably in shock when the reporter asks. When she talks about Katie, she still uses the present tense, slowly gravitating to the past, which makes sense. It's been barely a day without her in this world. There are instances when she's smiling ever so slightly, as she describes all of the best aspects of her girlfriend. She's the most expressive when she frowns, mentioning that Katie never did anything to anybody, her eyes widening with bewilderment. It makes sense that she'd feel this way, having found Katie's body and seeing how brutal the attack was. Right now, Emma is the only person who knows the extent of this so far, and she's most likely wondering why someone would want to hurt her, and with such rage. In the last 24 hours, how do you describe this last day for yourself? It's hard to describe. Uh, difficult. Um, unreal, pretty much. You feel like you're in a nightmare of some sort? Yeah, I've said that a couple times. Definitely, it's not a set in yet, I don't think, completely. Very just sad. You feel like you're still kind of shocked? Probably, yeah. If you could 
Hello Katie is my favorite person in the whole world, without a doubt. Um, I spend all the time with her, and even if like she was at work, that was normal. And if I was at home not without her, I, I, I missed her even in those times, you know. I always wanted her to be around. She was funny, she's smart, she always, I always tell people, I'm like, you know, I have random facts I like tell people, but I always learn them from her. She has something new to teach me every day. And that was one of my favorite things about her. Um, just, she's so smart. Like, I, and I always told her she could have done anything in the whole world that she wanted to do. She could have been anything, but she hated school. So <laughs> she didn't uh, take that path, but you know she was charismatic even if she didn't like to be around everybody all the time she was very to herself a lot of times she liked alone time so she's she was a really good person she never did anything bad to anybody you know she was really uh sarcastic um maybe had a little bit of dark humor but i like that about her Emma explains how they met at a restaurant that Katie was bartending for in Midtown. She inhales deeply and exhales as the reporter asks how long ago that was. Emma looks off to the side and thinks back, probably around seven or eight years ago. They officially celebrated their six-year anniversary last month. Then the reporter asks about Emma's last memory of her, if she's able to talk about Tuesday night. Emma describes how the morning went, as well as seeing Katie that evening before finding her in the park after work. It hasn't been very long since she was questioned for three hours by police, so Emma has probably recited these events quite a few times. As the camera pans out, we see Emma's lower body, her legs crossed in jeans, one arm resting on the armrest, gesturing naturally as she speaks. Her other hand is holding tightly to her pants pocket, not in the pocket, just gripping the opening. Sometimes hands in pockets can indicate a defensiveness or insecurity. But here, it seems almost as if it's a subconscious lifeline, the same way someone might grip onto a coffee cup for safety. And it's something Emma does in all of her sitting interviews, so it may just be how she places her hand, especially if she's feeling nervous. She starts to blink more rapidly, closing her eyes for a second or two, and shakes her head slightly side to side as she talks about how Katie and Bowie hadn't returned when she got home. After Katie didn't respond, Emma pretty much knew right away that something wasn't right. She didn't know what it was, but I knew something happened, had gone wrong, Emma says. I mean, we didn't usually, I didn't usually work Tuesday, but I guess, I mean, we had coffee together in the morning, like we always do, and just said, you know, goodbye, uh, see you later. She came by with the dog, because if she's out with the dog and she's over there, she'll always comes to say hi, lets me see him, and uh, just, you know check up on me, see how long I was going to be at work. And, you know, I said I love you. Be safe. I'll see you later. That was pretty much it. What made you, you know, say, hey, she's not back yet, or she normally yeah. is, what's the routine and what stood out as not normal? Well, I didn't get home till about an hour after I saw her. And she, we live like a mile up the road, so she would have been home by then because she wouldn't have gone much further uh, walking the dog. She doesn't usually stay out that late to, to walk him. So I 
and if if I get home and she's not there, I always call her. You know, just be like, hey, what's your ETA? Where you at? Whatever. And she didn't answer, and she always answers. So that's when I knew something was really wrong. I called her a bunch of times, she didn't answer. I texted her a bunch, she didn't respond. So I pretty much knew immediately something wasn't right. I didn't know what it was, but knew something was going wrong. Yeah, I used to find my iPhone app. I know of her information. Um, she uses, so I I got on there to look for, her and uh, that's what showed me she was at the park. So. Then the reporter asks, "What do you want to say to whoever is out there that did this?" Emma lets out a heavy sigh and says, "Honestly, I don't know. It's like a horror movie, and Katie didn't deserve to go through what she did." The autopsy hasn't even been finished, let alone released yet, so it's likely that authorities have instructed Emma to keep tight-lipped about details of that night that may be of any importance. But nobody, as of yet, understands the full extent of what Emma saw. If it wasn't for her knowing it was Katie, she wouldn't have recognized her because the attack had left her completely unrecognizable. That amount of blood and violence would be impossible for the brain to fully process, There would be points of disassociation or compartmentalization just to gain some semblance of physiological normalcy. Safe to say, her nervous system is probably shot. The familiarity of her father and his home is the only scrap of reality she has to firmly hold on to right now. Even the reporter is unaware of the state the body was found in, knowing only that this woman was killed in the park. And the seesaw contrast mental flashes of being asked about how she met Katie, changing instantly to finding her that night in that state. It's understandable why it would only prolong symptoms of shock. She was there, and then she wasn't. In the flash of a second, the unthinkable happened. Katie didn't deserve that, she says. I hope they, and Emma pauses, closes her eyes and opens them, find them, and I hope they get what they deserve, too. It sounds a little strange, and some people have interpreted that as her meaning, I hope they get what they deserve, too, just like Katie did. But another angle could be that she simply meant she hopes they find them, and that they get what they deserve, too, as in the consequences. I honestly don't know, but it's, this is the worst thing I could imagine. Uh, it's definitely like a horror, horror movie. And Katie didn't deserve to go through what she did. You know, my biggest thing that I've been saying for the past day is like, it's really sad for me to lose her, but I can't even imagine how scared she was to for that to happen you know she wasn't an easily scared person she was very confident she felt safe being in midtown and that in her final moments like that was taken from her and that bothers me the most and i hope they find them i hope they get what they deserve too The reporter says she's so sorry to Emma and gives her a break to ask her father a few questions. You see your daughter is hurting, and you knew Katie too. What do you think about all of this? Emma's father is the epitome of Southern hospitality. There's a lot of warmth there, but not necessarily a lot of emotion. He says the one thing that sticks out to him is how happy Katie made his daughter, and that he always felt like Emma was safe with her, that he didn't have to worry about her future. 
He thought Katie was intelligent and kind. He witnessed them build a life together. He mentions that they lost their first home in a house fire, and their resilience through leaning on each other in that time was amazing. The reporter asks how he's feeling, and he says he's extremely sad because Emma is hurting, and there's a slight frog in his throat. As he recalls parts of their relationship, Emma looks down with tired, swollen eyes. It must be so unreal to hear your father talking about the day you moved in with your girlfriend, while simultaneously being the only one on the porch who can picture what Katie looked like after she was murdered. And understandably, her father may want to keep things as positive and light as possible after the emotional state Emma has been in behind closed doors. It isn't every day that you find someone who is totally committed to creating a life with you. It had been almost a decade, and now his daughter would miss out on that partnership that gave her so much purpose and love. I'm extremely sad because, because Emma is hurting. And it's... Emma lived here before she and Katie, they were together for a couple of years before they ended up uh, moving in together. So Emma was here, and but she drove into Midtown to work every day. And then one day she says, you know, hey, well, Dad, I'm gonna move out. Me and Katie are gonna move in together. And I thought it was such a great thing for them so they wouldn't have to drive and everything. And um, they just, just always had a security about their relationship you know a lot of relationships people they think you're going to you know they change relationships so often but they weren't that way they were dedicated to each other and so it makes me feel sad that what she's going to miss out on because of it going back to emma again she talks more about their last day together and corrects some reports stating that they went out to dinner that evening emma had been at work she normally didn't work Tuesdays, but she had picked up a shift and rearranged her schedule so she could see Katie off at the airport the next day. Katie stopped by to say hi with Bowie, as she usually did, and that was it. Midtown was as safe as anywhere else. Katie had taken that walk dozens upon dozens of times. There was no reason to ever feel unsafe, as far as they knew. And with both of them being bartenders, it was normal for them to wake up late. So for Katie, midnight was afternoon, and nothing had ever happened before. Sometimes the mundane repetition of life gives the false impression of safety. She didn't always pick the same route walking the dog, so Emma clarifies that it wasn't a shock to find Katie in the park, but that wasn't necessarily her routine. No. I was at work, yeah. And she stopped by your job to say, hey, before she went out walking the dog, did she work that day? She didn't work that day. I don't normally work that day, but she was supposed to go out of town today go see her mom. She's supposed to fly to Michigan to see her mom. She hadn't seen her in a while. So I worked that day so that I could take her to the airport. Um, and yeah, I, I was at work really late. We have some new people and things are just taking longer. So I was there really way later than usual. So we did not go to dinner. No. She always walks the dogs late. We're, I mean, we both work at night, so we're always up during the evenings. Like, normally, we're not, we don't get up until afternoon, normally, you know, like one o'clock. And then, you know, we don't get our day started. We don't go to work until four at the earliest, normally. So, yeah, usually, you know, we'd get home from work and she, she would walk the dog. Usually, I wouldn't be off yet, so she would leave before I got home. And she would usually be back about when I got home or um, 
a little bit after. So, I mean, it was normal for her to, you know, like I saw her at 1130 that in Midtown, like that's not really that late. There was still a bunch of people around, even like right up the street. There was, you know, that's where Blake's is and G's and there were, t there were tons of people around. She always goes out. I, I know that she, she didn't normally go like through the park, I don't think. Like she did sometimes, but she always took different routes. She liked knowing the neighborhood. She always, she knew every part of Midtown, so she could go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I've never had a problem. You know, I always told people like, cause a lot of people would be like, oh, you know, it seems like you're a woman walking alone or like whatever. And I was like, yeah, I mean, the most I've ever had, like I have homeless people come up to me and ask me for money, but generally they're, harmless people they just they you know you give them a dollar you say no and you move on nobody's ever really given us a problem the reporter mentions that there's been flowers and cards for katie and bowie left at the park and a vigil for them that night emma says that everyone has been really nice she's thankful for the support and for reaching out it's been overwhelming people have been donating money and that makes her happy because she knows that katie's mom doesn't have the means to take care of everything and neither does she a friend of Emma set up a GoFundMe in her name to help with the cost and consequences of such a tragedy. The public doesn't know it yet, but Emma is done with Midtown. She doesn't know where she's going to go or what she's going to do. But stepping foot inside that apartment, or that bar, or that park again, seems like an impossibly traumatizing endeavor. When you saw your phone ping to Piedmont Park, did anything stand out to you? The reporter asks. Because I couldn't get it to, to ping right away. And when it did, I, the first thing I noticed is that it wasn't moving. And I was like, she wouldn't just be stopped somewhere. Like, she wouldn't sit somewhere. And, like, she was with the dog. She was just going to walk with the dog. She didn't, like, hang out anywhere when she did that. So that was the first thing I noticed. I thought maybe she had just, like, dropped her phone somewhere and didn't notice. Or, you know, I didn't know what, what to think about it. But I, I knew it was strange. I know you said she wasn't the most outgoing or extroverted person, but how do you think she would want to be remembered? Emma says yes, Katie wasn't extroverted, but she knew everyone. Everyone liked her. She, I, I know that she knew people cared about her, and she had a lot of friends, and those people, I know they'll remember her fondly because she never gave anybody a reason not to. You know, she was never hurtful or... Did, did anything to make anybody think less of her, I don't, I don't think. The reporter asks if there's anything else that's relevant that she wants to add, and Emma sighs, saying that she doesn't really know. She stops and pauses. She was a good person, and I want them to figure out who did this. She didn't deserve this, and I hate it. I hate it for her that she had to go through that. Is there anything that you want to add? The reporter asks her father. He says he wants people to know that Katie was amazingly intelligent, often the smartest person in the room. She loved art. She loved to collect books. She loved to play guitar and sing. She cared about others. She cared about her community. Some people are taken aback by the seemingly casual nature of her father's tone. He sounds closer to bragging about someone off at college than remembering a person who was murdered the night before. But there are so very few times in the media that the victim is spoken about this way and memorialized with humanity instead of sensationalism. And it's safe to say that this most likely isn't very real to him either. But even with the absence of one select display of a particular emotion, still remains proof of many others. There's still sadness within his pride and adoration for Katie. 
24 hours isn't enough for the body and mind to fully process the extent of this situation. He seems keen to what Emma can and can't handle, and her pain is something he wants to protect as a father. There are times in life when you have to put on a brave face for the world, he believed, and this was one of them. And if they didn't have any leads or helpful information, they felt that the best thing they could do was honor Katie to the full extent in memory and kind words. They start talking about the music that Katie recently shared, and Emma, who has been sitting in sad silence, looking as if she could cry at any minute, finds some reprieve in this topic. She smiles and laughs, recalling how excited Katie was when she would get a new listen. Even if it was like 10 or 12 or something, it was just amazing to have it out there for the world to hear. The reporter asks if they can play some of it, and after a minute of searching, Emma has her SoundCloud link. She prefaces it with a disclaimer first, about how Katie was very passionate and political. She wanted that to shine through in her music. And Emma says something interesting here, about how Katie would mention regulars at the bar that she'd disagree with. In a calm world with no issue, it seems that debates over the bar counter was probably the closest thing to tension that Katie had in her life. She's... She was always really, um... I just want to say this before I play this song, because it was it's a little bit political, but it's... She felt very strongly in like her views but she was always really nice about it like she's the kind of person like I know that she would tell me about regulars she had at the bar that would disagree with her on things and she would just try to change their minds little by little and like every time she saw them she she always talked about the next time they come in I'm gonna talk to them about this and uh that's what I loved about her because her and I are the same politically and everything <laughs> so she always we wanted would, we would one-on-one -on -one, we would get people you know because so she always just, wanted to uh She's a big change people's minds. She's a big she social justice person. The interview coverage ends abruptly once Katie's song has played for a few minutes, and this will be one of the first pieces of evidence that the court of public opinion will use to condemn Emma Clark as the prime suspect for her girlfriend's murder. Authorities would question Emma Clark for over three hours that night. Social media would run rampant with vicious rumors, and within a few days, the court of public opinion had already deemed her guilty, or in the least, highly suspicious. And for as much as she wanted the Atlanta police to clear her name publicly because of all the harassment she was receiving, it wasn't their job to shake theories online. In order for them to truly clear her, or anyone, they would have to arrest someone else. However, if there was any link whatsoever that made her suspicious in the eyes of the law, she would have been taken into custody. Emma's alibi cleared out, all of their tech had absolutely nothing strange or questionable on it, and it appeared that the people closest to the couple had nothing negative to say about either of them. On August 3rd, Emma did another interview with 11 Alive Atlanta News, explaining that when she found Katie, she tried checking for a pulse, but it was clear from her injuries that she was gone. When she was certain there was no hope, Emma ran out of the dark park in fear, and she urged the public to be safe and pay attention, not believing that this attack on Katie was specifically targeted, even though this was an area that they both felt comfortable being out late and alone in. Now, it was different. Emma wouldn't be returning to Midtown to work or live, not wanting to be reminded of all the memories she shared with Katie, now tinged with the haunting nightmare of how she died. Finding her that way was so traumatic, 
she could never walk past that park again. I tried to feel for her pulse, but it was it was clear that uh, she was already gone. And I and I I turned around and I just ran out of the park because it was dark and I didn't know what was going on. I was terrified and and shocked. But I do want everybody to pay attention and and be safe around there. You know, I know a lot of people. We all go around there. We're out late, but now it's you know it's different. But Katie's murder would stir up more than just fear. It also sparked outrage from the community when the police shared that nine surveillance cameras inside the park weren't even working at the time she was murdered. A few cameras around the perimeter of the park and neighboring streets were working, one catching Katie crossing the Rainbow Pride intersection at 10th Street and Piedmont Road around 12.09 a.m. after she left Henry's. There was a group of women seen leaving the park at 11.55, wearing bags and purses, walking casually away. At 12.25, a man with a cane exits the opposite side of the park, looking at his cell phone as he casually strolls off. He's not using the cane for walking assistance, as it taps the ground out of beat with his steps. At 12.43, a person appearing to wear a hoodie exits, walking swiftly away, appearing to be holding something in their hand. Finally, a jogger exiting around 12.46 is seen leaving the park wearing athletic shorts, a t-shirt, and a bright flashlight headband. He was just yards away from the scene of the crime. It suggests that what happened to Katie was done extremely quickly, but it wasn't like they were in the middle of nowhere. The attacker risked being caught by witnesses at any point. Emma called 911 at 1.11 a.m. after finding Katie just a little beyond the front gate. 11 Alive then shared a series of photographs and video clips taken at an entrance area of Piedmont Park during the August 3rd interview with Emma. By August 6th, Atlanta News would report the jogger seen in one of the photographs was the first witness to come forward to police. At 12.46, he's seen exiting the park less than 25 minutes before Emma discovered Katie's lifeless body. It would seem that nobody witnessed the murder, but this would give authorities a window of time to dissect more closely. And there were still at least five people on camera during that time that had yet to come forward. Katie's autopsy report would reveal an animalistic attack that had been so brutal with force. This person hadn't just wanted to kill someone. They wanted to absolutely demolish them. Katie had suffered more than 50 stab wounds, with many of those being specifically injuries to her neck and her torso area. There were at least 15 sharp force injuries to her face and head, leaving her nearly decapitated. She had stabs through each of her breasts, her lungs, her lower back, and extremities. The medical examiner made a note that her body was covered in leaves and dirt when it was received. The black t-shirt she had been wearing corresponded to wounds on her body. Her jeans and blue underwear were knee level, with a $5 bill still in the watch pocket. There were many hallmarks of a sexual sadist, which could indicate a possible gratification associated with a fantasy intertwining sexual desires and extreme violence. She had been wearing earbuds, and it appears that at some point, maybe even to begin with, she was attacked from behind. A multicolored tattoo on her back may have been the target of a lot of stab wounds, although that's only speculation, especially since her t-shirt would have been covering it from view. And with insane boldness, her attacker had also taken the time to carve the letters F-A-T on her torso. It's possible this was done while she was still alive. But Katie hadn't gone without a fight. Her hands and arms were covered in defensive wounds from trying to save herself and, no doubt, her dog Bowie. The pit bull had been stabbed to death as well, although no official report has been released. There's a hope that evidence could be gathered somehow from Bowie, whether on his body or maybe from his mouth, if he possibly bit the attacker. Katie was about 100 feet away from him, and some theorize that she may have been trying to flee, that it's very possible Bowie was killed first and paid the ultimate price while trying to protect her. 
Katie's manner of death was ruled as homicide, caused by major damage to her organs and blood vessels. The Atlanta police soon announced that her murder had turned into a forensic investigation, but remained tight-lipped regarding any movement within it, no doubt hanging on to certain aspects of the crime in the hopes of nabbing the only person who would be able to verify those details. Every bit of evidence that they can maintain in the hopes of using it towards an arrest is top priority, but it still leaves the community that once felt safe held in suspension with fear. Even though Katie's murder wouldn't lead to the same amount of national headlines as others, those who had heard about it couldn't help but speculate while the authorities stayed tight-lipped. It's a new age of self-anointed by-proxy online detectives, analyzing each detail based off of their favorite Dateline episodes or hand-me-down psychology textbooks. Safe to say, if you blink at the wrong time or don't give the expected response, you're as good as guilty. Audience participation has definitely helped further cases, sometimes even supplying angles and discoveries that have led to actual arrests. But there's danger in such a fickle foundation. Some people think it's enough to just have a feeling that something isn't right, based on small interviews or merely the description of a case itself. Luckily, the real investigating is left to professionals with unwavering focus on all possibilities, avoiding tunnel vision and personal projection. At least, ideally. Even after years of no connection, there are people who strongly believe that Emma murdered her dog and her partner. And because this case has no leads, every theory needs to be fully examined. However, Emma's alibi was thoroughly investigated, and they didn't seem to have any relationship issues. If they did, there's no trace of that in any tech or communication between them. But there are people who simply kill for the thrill, or because they see no escape from their current reality, for even the smallest of financial gains and many other reasons. Emma leaving the scene in fear raised pessimistic eyebrows, some saying she must have wanted to rid herself of evidence before police could get a chance to speak with her. Others believing it's just another ingredient proving that she's cold to the bone. There have been comments about how it's suspect that there's no footage of her coming and going that night, but there's a good chance that Emma entered the park in an area out of camera vision, the ones that were working, anyway. And under the most strict of criticisms, even the 911 call comes across as calm to people who disagree with her response. And her demeanor during interviews cast doubt upon her emotional investment in Katie to those who think she should be screaming, crying, or struggling. But unlike the charismatic killer she's being painted as, she doesn't come across as if she's trying to be overly convincing or defend herself. It's more a forlorn quietness in her, broken down with exhaustion and disbelief. This attack had been so unbelievably brutal, one fueled by hatred and rage to the fullest extent of human emotion. It would be difficult for an individual capable of such a crime to not have even a speck of that impulsivity and psychological disorganization spilling over into other areas of their life. Even in the most charismatic of killers who lead double lives to continue their crimes have patterns of behavioral issues. And it's important to remember that Katie wasn't just killed. She was intentionally desecrated and tortured in a short amount of time. Her pants may have slipped down during an escape, but there's a strong possibility leading to the attacker having done it themselves, only adding to the list of things that were done during the attack to heighten their pleasure and excitement. The thought of a complete stranger walking through a park in the middle of the night with a weapon ready to carry out the most nightmarish of thrills is an outrageous fear to confront. We don't want that to be true. But there's no shred of evidence linking Emma to this murder. And even though both scenarios hold a lingering unanswered why in the air, for some, it's easier to sweep that away in the view of Emma's guilt. It doesn't matter why. She's the partner. We know the statistics. Therefore, she did it. Since Katie's murder held such a frightening level of intimacy, there are those who challenge that if it wasn't her partner, then who else would desire such a personal fight? Because Katie put up one hell of a fight, 
And it's hard to believe that her opponent wouldn't walk away with their own set of bruises, scratches, or cuts as well. Emma is smaller and shorter than Katie. It would have taken all her strength and then some. Katie's attacker was close to her the entire time, animalistic in nature and bold enough to go after someone with a dog in an area where any passerby could have come upon them. Avoiding murder in their own home would be a wise decision if she was in fact guilty, but Emma would have either had to leave work early without anyone knowing or hire someone to follow Katie out of the bar and kill her. But again, no tech, no interviews, and no searches have brought any evidence that Emma could have known what was about to happen that night. Nothing specific about Bowie has been released. There's a good chance that omitted details about his attack would shine even more light on the offender's profile. Understandably, Bowie is a big focus. Even though he was five, Bowie was babied in his environment and the dog he shared a home with was 14 years old. A calm and reliable routine was what Bowie was used to. Katie was comfortable bringing him anywhere and everywhere because he never lost his cool or acted up, even in loud bar crowds or bustling tourist sidewalks. And something that in order to get close enough to Katie, Bowie must have recognized the person. But not knowing exactly how or what direction Katie was attacked from makes it unclear as to how much time either of them had to realize something was wrong. There's strong evidence to support that she was attacked from behind. Katie used her walks to catch up on her favorite podcasts or music and possibly didn't even see or hear the person. Bowie would have been walking in front of her and most likely only noticed the attack after that point. And there's speculation that Katie could have been dragged to where her body was found, giving the killer extra time to work in a darker and more isolated area. Or maybe Bowie was attacked first, giving her a chance to attempt escaping. If someone believes that Emma killed Katie, then they also have to believe that she specifically killed her own dog while leaving Katie's elderly dog at home. To the average person, that might not seem significant, but these details all fine-tune a specific psychological profile that is nearly impossible to fit Emma into. And there's nothing to indicate that Bowie didn't also give the fight of his life trying to save Katie. Even a pit bull can only do so much to someone seeking out that kind of brutality, obviously prepared with an extremely sharp weapon. Stabbing is a rapid method to cause major damage in a short amount of time. It doesn't seem that this was for robbery purposes, as her earbuds, the $5 bill, and other worthwhile belongings were found. They wanted blood. And there's no evidence to suggest that the murder was a hate crime. Katie was a well-known resident in a fairly LGBTQ-friendly neighborhood. Emma mentioned people at the bar who Katie would have heated debates with, but if someone really had it in for her because of that, she didn't seem to be aware of it. She'd been bartending at her current job for over five years. If anything, she just had stories about regulars making her job enjoyable and interesting. Her life was stable and ordinary. She worked, she enjoyed her self-made family, she was focusing on her music, Nothing sticks out to authorities to say this attacker was a person from within her circle. There's also nothing to completely disclude the idea that this was done by more than one person, either. The level of sophistication of violent crime within street gangs in Atlanta can't be totally overlooked. For example, in 2015, Atlanta PD was tracking 192 known gangs. The following year, more than half of the violent crime in the city would be linked to gang members. Any possible relationship to the victim is of great importance, and when such extreme aggression is focused around the face area, it's often assumed that the person knew the victim. This crime definitely has all the markings of hostility and vindictiveness. But when it comes to this type of crime in this type of setting, someone who knew Katie might possibly show a more coercive and opportunistic approach, whereas these hallmarks of expressive and explosive violence could actually indicate a stranger attack. Katie may have been a placeholder or a representation for something, or just the right person at the wrong time. Most serial offenders of this nature tend to use a blitz method, or sudden attack, and they're usually unknown to their victims. 
And we often assume that with serial offenders, there will be a geographical pattern as well. But with no solid connections to any other Atlanta homicides, Katie's case stands alone in its haunting singularity. They chose to use a knife, which is also significant when assessing their profile. A knife is silent and swift, but also requires you to be close to your victim. It's personal. In many attacks, a knife itself can be a metaphor of sexual gratification, a means of penetration. Sexual sadists often love to humiliate and torture their victims, striving to have total control over them. Carving those letters into Katie's body doesn't have to be a personal message. It could also be something specific to the killer's state of mind. But why wouldn't a stranger target someone more vulnerable, the skeptics say? And to that, there is still no answer. Sexual sadists operate through not just planning, but opportunity, with no mercy. Yes, it's a bold move to go after Katie, but this type of perpetrator is keen to body language. They pay attention to levels of alertness, posture, even clothing. All it would take is a split second of her guard to be down for them to make their move. What appears irrationally risky to the logical brain might make total sense to that of a psychopathic mind. But what possibly remains the most maddening fact about this case is the random bits of footage from what working cameras police were able to gather evidence from. Time and time again, we see authorities conceal certain facts and evidence in order to protect the investigation. So the possibility that there might be more footage than they've shared is real, but most likely a false hope. After more than two years, it's hard to believe that the police wouldn't release information to stir up public assistance over time. The area Katie and Bowie were found was small in terms of their proximity to each other. But that isn't to say the killer left the park near that location. Piedmont Park is 189 acres. That's roughly 189 football fields big. The killer wouldn't have to exit through the park by an official entrance. There's plenty of places where they could just walk out through the trees onto a nearby street with nobody being the wiser. Atlanta saw its highest murder rate in three decades the year that Katie was killed. There's something to be said for the park's rising homeless population, the city's high-intensity drug trafficking, and a lack of mental health resources. In 2022, 12.5% of the city's jail bookings were of those who identify as homeless. Despite the robbery rate falling, 2022 saw a rise in aggravated assaults. And even though a middle-class white woman like Katie was far from the average victim in Atlanta that year, her murder would be one of many to showcase a growing problem. Given that it's so unusual in nature, so graphic and disturbing, her case is unfortunately unique in many ways. The Atlanta Police Department would seek the assistance of the FBI within 24 hours of the murder, which isn't regular protocol. Even though the reason why was never shared, it's most likely the level of violence within the crime as well as the scene. Homicide investigations are a day-to-day -day process within the police department, but violent events like serial killers, mass murders, and spree shooters are often investigations that push local authorities past their resource limits. The nature of Katie's murder required all hands on deck, especially in its immediate aftermath. Still, the mayor would assure the community that there was no reason to think a deranged serial killer was on the loose. But the truth remains that whoever did this is out there, or in the least hasn't been found in connection to this crime. And while the case continues behind the scenes on mostly forensics and a devoted patience, theories only continue to multiply in number. Channel 2 Atlanta News would reach out repeatedly to Katie's mother Bobby for an interview but instead she would respond with a letter to the network. At the time of Emma's phone call, she had been excitedly shopping for chocolates to put on Katie's pillow. It was an inside joke they shared. They hadn't seen each other since Christmas 2019, and with travel restrictions lifted, it was the first thing on their list as a family. She assumed Emma was about to let her know that Katie was on her way, not that she had been brutally murdered. Her sister Ronnie and I have missed her company, she wrote. 
And now instead of hugging her hard and laughing at her wit, we are in complete agony. I'm consumed with an indescribable anguish and constant physical pain. Katie was excited to see us and to spend time with her friends here. Maybe that is what is part of what's adding to this tremendous anguish I'm suffering. The fact that Katie, being of incredible radiance, humor, and intelligence, along with a committed involvement in the environment, politics, and respect for her fellow human and fur-covered neighbors and friends in Atlanta, was struck so violently and cruelly, has incapacitated me to the core. And the fact that Katie was so strong inside and out, and felt in every fiber of her being that she was loved and cherished by Emma, her sister, and me, and so many others, and that Bowie was such a courageous knight, are the only tiny slivers of light that I can take away from this horrific attack on my baby's life. A treasure was stolen, and we are grieving together. And I thank you, her friends, and her community for this effusion of heartfelt solidarity and affection. Emma and I will need to go down a long road of special counseling to make it back from hell. She thanked the community again for all the love and support, ending it with a ferocious pledge to move forward with perseverance, for Katie's sake. Even all the way from Michigan, both the love and outrage sparked from Katie's murder would be felt, and rightfully so. The community would come together, even rallying supporters online using the hashtag StandUpForKatie, demanding more accountability from the city, more proactive policing, a system that actually keeps repeating offenders off of the street, and, at bare minimum, functioning surveillance cameras. In response, the Piedmont Park Conservancy created the Safe Haven Fund for safety initiatives in the park. Partnering with the city of Atlanta, they would create a list of several projects that would enhance safety. Things like clearing overgrowth, shrubs, and grass that block sight lines from in and out of the park, replacing light bulbs, repairing light poles, and installing more lighting to give greater visibility along the walking paths. By April 2022, the Atlanta City Council voted to install new cameras in the park as well, telling Channel News that the Department of Parks and Recreation has more than 250 cameras across its system, and there are more than 30 cameras currently active in Piedmont Park which are compatible with the APD VIC system, which means it's a live feed, not just a recording. Although similar promises were made a decade earlier, in May 2009, when 43-year-old Patrick Boland was stabbed to death in Piedmont Park around 1.30 a.m. Before that, it had been two decades since the park had seen a murder. The Conservancy president would note the effort for hiring additional security, adding extra lights, and controlling shrubbery overgrowth, while also reminding citizens that the park is technically only open from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. Even when police came to the scene, they found citizens hiding in the bushes, trying to avoid the consequences of being there after closing. Although Patrick's murder has mostly been linked to the possibility of robbery or complications while quote-unquote sex cruising from the authorities, there are still plenty who believe it could have been a hate crime or random act of violence because Patrick was a gay black man and the amount of rage in the attack itself was extensive. After Katie's murder, Emma and a friend would raise funds on GoFundMe for all of the unforeseen expenses. Emma's friend Heather, who was really the one in charge of the page, left a personal note from Emma in the description. Today I lost the love of my life and my baby boy. It was tragic. She was the most intelligent, kind, humble, and beautiful person I have ever known. I wanted to spend every second with her, and he was the sweetest, most loyal companion. My heart is so very broken. My world will never be the same. Thank you to everyone who has reached out. It is truly appreciated. Nearly $80,000 was raised very quickly. When an emergency situation happens, like the unexpected death of a loved one, people are often left with current expenses on top of new financial burdens. And Emma hadn't merely experienced the sudden death of a loved one. After the brutal murder, she was the first person to find Katie's body, in a way that would surely give even the most sound of minds extreme post-traumatic stress. 
Emma would use the funds to get new housing, understandably unable to stay in the same home and neighborhood where Katie was brutally murdered. There were also funeral costs, contributions to vigils and memorials, flights for Bobby to come stay with her, and paying for her cost of living while just trying to wake up every day and do the bare minimum of functioning. A few posts on the GoFundMe kept contributors up to date on how the funds would be spent, always being clear that first and foremost, the money was going to Emma. As the donations came in, they kept everybody updated on whether or not they may contribute to a reward fund for Katie. Luckily, within a few days, Crime Stoppers and private contributors would go above and beyond with pledging $10,000. But if that wouldn't be enough, then maybe adding more would help. Rewards are great, in theory, but there's really little evidence to show that they actually motivate people to come forward with information. They're mostly used to just maintain some sort of interest in a case. There's a hope that the higher the reward, the more publicity and exposure a case will get. And higher rewards may increase the number of tips, but it doesn't necessarily mean those tips will lead to anything concrete. The FBI has been notorious for offering large rewards as early as the 1950s, as well as a minimum of $100,000 for information leading to direct arrests of anyone on their top 10 most wanted list. In 1976, Crime Stoppers would launch a method of offering reward money for tips while allowing people to remain anonymous. Unlike the FBI, an arrest isn't necessarily required. You can receive money simply for information that leads to being useful to the investigation. And no doubt, these are powerful ways to encourage citizen awareness and reporting. It gives communities an opportunity to fight back against crime while feeling safe enough to do so. Even for the survivors of loved ones, contributing to reward money can give them a sense of purpose in a helpless situation. Although most reward money tends to actually go unclaimed. Not only do most people share tips simply out of personal moral obligation, but many assume that the anonymity only goes so far. If a tip leads to an award, tipsters are given a number to provide at an anonymous bank, and they're able to pick that up with no questions asked or identification required. In almost all cases, they aren't even required to testify in court. And for those who see Emma as guilty, it's hard to know what dollar amount would appease them. Even with another $10,000 added to the reward money, it wouldn't guarantee a tip that would crack the case. More so, if there's a person or people out there that know something, what amount would it take to outweigh their personal costs they fear might happen as a consequence? There's a myriad of other reasons why someone might be hesitant to report a crime. They might think their tip isn't valuable, or maybe it's about a family member or friend. They could be guilty of the crime as well, or separate crimes and fear legal repercussions. Or worse, what if they're wrong and somehow the person finds out and retaliates? The list goes on and on. All this to say, in a system not proven to work 100%, is it practical to expect family members to put their own survival and financial well-being second to reward funds at a time when they need the help the most? As they were contemplating adding to the $10,000, the organization PETA would announce on August 3rd that a private member had matched the offer after hearing about the loss of Bowie, bringing the total to $20,000. PETA Vice President Colleen O'Brien would share her thoughts and fears on the psychology of such an attack. Anyone who would kill a woman and the dog who likely tried to defend her, as loyal dogs invariably do, is a threat to the entire community of living, feeling beings. PETA knows well the sociological studies of killers who target the most vulnerable among us and urges anyone with information to come forward to the police to identify this callous killer. Still, Emma would be attacked online, and how she chose to spend the money would be one of the reasons why. Nearly four months later in November, she would interview again with Atlanta News First, going over that night once more, and explaining that 75% of the money went to her personal spending. Emma probably felt pressured to explain that because of all the threats and harassment she'd been receiving. Letters, voicemails, any way people could find her. 
But the funds were always supposed to go to Emma to help her pay for anything and everything she needed, because so many unexpected hurdles come up after a tragedy like this. And the messages from donators are all loving notes for her. I can't imagine what you're going through. I'm so sorry for your loss. You're not alone. This community is here for you. My heart aches for you, Emma. It's fair to say that most funds were given with no price tag of expectation as to how they were spent. I had nothing to do with it, Emma told the reporter. And I can say that a hundred times, and I know people are thinking, of course she's going to say that. But it is the truth. The segment also mentioned that Emma's father told them that male DNA was found on Katie's body, but police confirmed nothing for the network. A whole year would pass in silence. The Atlanta PD would hold a conference in July 2022, assuring the public that the department cares deeply about solving the case and wants faith that they have the capability to do so. Tips still continue to come in through the Crime Stopper line, but they have yet to discover a suspect. They continue to canvas for witnesses, execute search warrants, follow up on tips, and of course, rely heavily on any technology available to them. It's assumed that Katie's case relies mainly on digital footage and possible DNA evidence. That year, friends and family would unveil a memorial bench in the park for Katie and Bowie, all money having been raised by them to do so. Engraved on it was student of life for Katie and loyal companion for Bowie. The Clark family would share a statement online as well. Over the past year, there hasn't been a waking moment that Katie hasn't been in our hearts and on our minds since she was taken from us. Her senseless death has affected our daily lives in a manner that is hard to describe. We are remembering Katie in private today and want to thank all of those who have honored and remembered her by keeping her story alive. We are vigilant in bringing her killer to justice and have remained in contact with Mayor Dickens, who assures us that the city of Atlanta is doing everything they can to solve this case. Please continue to keep Emma and Katie's mother in your prayers. In 2023, two years after her murder, there would still be no leads or persons of interest. Authorities would assure the public that the case is still extremely active behind the scenes, encouraging them to come forward with any helpful tips. Even if they weren't near the park that night, what they know could still be of great value. Emma's father would express his own confusion to Atlanta News First, saying, It's a busy park, you know? And it's always just baffled me that the only picture that we see of Katie is at the Rainbow Crosswalk, and then she's found several blocks away. I mean, just how can no one have any type of contact? Atlanta is busy, even at midnight. Emma's family would release another official statement, refusing to let their hope of solving the case drift away with time. The Clark family continues to mourn the senseless murder of our Katie every day that goes by. Katie was a beautiful, talented soul that had so much to give to the world and always was a champion of those less fortunate. We are still in hope of justice being served to the person or persons responsible and pray that the Atlanta Police Department and the FBI find this monster before they repeat the heinous acts done to our sweet Katie and her precious dog, Bowie. If anyone has any information concerning this case, please reach out to the Atlanta Police Department. As the months continue to pass by, the murder of Katie Janess remains a mystery hanging heavy over Midtown, over every person who knew her and especially those who loved her. She had a vibrant view of the world, a tough exterior caging a gentle and giving heart. To understand Katie was to welcome layered complexity, fierce loyalty, and unconditional acceptance. And maybe in a more alternate perspective, Katie was right when she felt like she would stand for something much bigger than herself. And whether graced or doomed by that fate, she has still managed to become a name that thousands upon thousands of people know. A cataclysm showing the cracks in the foundation of what's faulty and unfinished. She was a caretaker archetype. And still, rising from the ashes, here she is. 
saving the lives of all those who will benefit from what has happened since her passing, becoming a literal light in the pitch black dark, representing a space where someone is safe to rest and retreat and contemplate life. It isn't enough. That's true. It won't ever be enough. There is no undoing here, just a tugging at so many directions that all lead to incomprehensible voids of humanity. And when Katie's killer is caught, it won't be within the small details of glances or sighs, but most likely in a story much more ordinary, and that's what makes it so terrifying. Stranger, acquaintance, close friend, or partner, to confront that kind of unpredictable rage, the eerie hint of planning, the complete and total destruction of life, it's a fear we can't shake off completely because the proof is right here. It's unthinkable that it could even exist, and yet somehow it does. Whether in passing faces of nameless bodies or tangled threads leading its way back to people still willing to turn the other way, these aren't evil monsters under the bed. They're just people. And while the intricacies of this event leave it in the small percentage of major unsolved cases, this investigation is far from cold. Katie's legacy is only beginning, and the season of victory will come. Because for as long as evil waits, justice waits much longer. <laughs>